Hi, everybody, and welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, UTSA's Neuroscience Research Podcast. Today, we're talking with Mackenzie Howard, who is Assistant Professor at the Departments of Neurology and Neuroscience and at the Center for Learning at Memory at the Dell Medical School and the University of Texas at Austin. McKinsey studies cellular and circuit changes that are responsible for epilepsy, especially genetic forms of epilepsy and some other genetic neurological disorders. He's lately focused on a particular genetic developmental epilepsy, and I think we'll probably just talk about that. Yeah. Hi, McKinsey. Hi. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot for coming. And with us is also Jenny Shea, our local genetics and epilepsy expert. Hi, Jenny. Hi. And me, Glad I'm Charlie Wilson. <laughs> Great to have you back. Have you back. Yeah. Jenny, if you've watched the podcast, you know Jenny is on quite a bit. So epilepsy is famously a difficult phenomenon to explain, even difficult to study in some ways. And one of the reasons is that it's just diverse. There's so many different kinds of epilepsy, and you never know which one you're studying unless you know which one you're studying. And so studying one that is a genetic form has some big advantages, uh, makes sense, uh, partly because you're studying one disease, presumably. Mm -hmm. There's one gene, you should be studying one disease. And secondly, because the identity of the gene should be a clue, should really tell us a lot and help us get started finding that source of that. Of course, that may not be the same mechanism as the next form of epilepsy that we study, but at least... If we had one of them under our belt, we would be happy. So, mm-hmm. so could you say something about what the gene is and what kind of a clue it gives you and what the particular disease is that goes with this gene? Sure. Yeah. So the main disorder that I study is called Dravet syndrome. It's a very severe epilepsy that tends to strike in infancy. And the patients that have it start off with febrile seizures, which is seizures that you get caused by a fever. And febrile seizures are actually really common in little kids, not common in in infants. Um, And actually, a huge proportion of people have fever-induced seizures and never go on on to have epilepsy or or any other difficulties. It's just a common thing that can happen to to our brains. Um, But in this specific syndrome, those febrile seizures often then turn into spontaneous seizures, which are really hard to treat. They aren't, you know, they aren't really effectively treated by anti-epileptic drugs. And then a whole host of other developmental and cognitive problems affecting almost every kind of neurological, neurological system. Um, so it's a really severe uh, disorder for the, the people that, that, that have this disorder. And there are a couple of um, main genes that are linked to Dravet syndrome. Uh, the one I study is called SCN1B, and this gene encodes um, this little protein that has a bunch of different jobs. And those jobs um, give us clues about what we kind of would expect um, the outcome to be for, for this gene being um, being damaged by, um, by variants. Um, and, and at the same time, there are a lot of kind of surprises that have come up with with our research in this gene. And I started off studying genetic epilepsies because honestly, um, it, it now seems very naive. I thought that that was gonna be easier. Mm-hmm. I thought I would be able to wrap my head around the initial insult is this one broken gene. Mm-hmm. And I normally think one gene has one job. Yes, and, and that is, as it turns out, entirely un- untrue. Mm-hmm. Um, and. Because most genes have multiple jobs, and especially in different types of cells in the brain and also in the rest of the body. This gene is really important in 
in um, our heart muscle. And so the patients with gene variants to this gene also have cardiac problems, which is also a real source of, of health problems for them. So, um, so that's how, how I kind of got started. I, I started off um, studying this, this disorder, thinking, thinking it was something I'd be able to wrap my head around. Um, and the kind of joyous naivete um, has, has turned out that it's become this really interesting and complex puzzle um, that, that, that I've really you know, kind of enjoyed starting to unwrap and also um, enjoyed kind of the humility of realizing how complicated the brain is and how hard these things have become to understand. So tell us about some of the jobs that this gene has, like that we could somehow relate to. Epilepsy. Yeah. So the main thing this gene, SCN1B, I'm gonna, I will mistakenly kind of call it two different things. SCN1B is the gene, and it codes mainly for a protein called beta one. So the beta one protein, its its most um, well known function is that it serves as kind of an anchor for. Proteins called bigger proteins called ion channels, and ion channels are, are the main thing that that um, that help our neurons do electrical signaling. Um, so it's okay with our audience. You can say sodium channel. Okay, sodium. You can even great. say NAV one point one. NAV one point one. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. So so that was what it was discovered as 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 a partner for is NAV one point one, uh, the voltage gated sodium channel, which is hugely involved in in producing action potentials, um, and it and so these um, this beta one. Um, protein links and acts as an anchor and and helps to get that that sodium channel where it's supposed to be and um, and it was originally thought that this was its main and sole function but since that since its discovery um, and especially I have to I can't not mention uh, Dr. Lori Isom who's now at University of Michigan who discovered um, the SCN1B gene characterized it and has done a huge amount of work on understanding its role in normal neural function and also in diseases like Dravet syndrome. And she's, she's a great mentor to me and is a fantastic scientist. Um, so so my, my work kind of, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of, of one specific giant, which is Lori Isom. Um, but so, so in addition to that job as, a, as kind of an ion channel anchor, um, beta-1, in, in, without regards to ion channels, also serves as a cell adhesion molecule which helps to guide neuron development. So neurons kind of, as they grow through, you know, the developing brain. And it also, portions of it can be cleaved off and, and are released in the extracellular space where they serve as some sort of signaling molecule that we don't fully understand. And also are cleaved off into the intracellular space where they can bind to different factors and serve to regulate transcription. So a whole bunch of very diverse jobs for one little protein to, and, to take And that on. would explain why it's not exclusive in the brain. Mm -hmm. but, but even kind of in the brain during development, could it also express in cells that are not even quite neurons? Like, what do you think about uh, progenitor cells? Yeah, so certainly um, it, it, it probably is really important in, in progenitor cells and in their maybe their growth into neurons or their growth into other cell types. Mm -hmm. Um, and honestly, I don't think we we know very much at all about the function of this protein in other cell types. But I'm I would bet it's there, and I bet it's doing something really important. Um, and this, you know, these I think these multiple functions um, are related to how complex and severe this disease of Dravet syndrome yeah. is. Um, in that it's it, not just it's, one insult. 
Exactly. It's not one cell type that's uh-huh. affected. It's not one kind of brain system or neural activity that's affected. It's it's a whole host of things. But it's pretty ironic because probably you are thinking, I'm going to be looking at this gene that has to do with action potentials and neuronal excitability. But it, So I don't have to worry about the network because it, another concern is, oh, the brain isn't developing the correct connections and that's what's causing it. I don't want to think about that. I want to think about neuron excitability. But then it turns out your gene is involved in the development of the network. So the thing could still be either a circuitry misgrowth or a, even a cell fate uh, problem. As In addition to... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, to the thing you were hoping it was going to be, which is, oh, the cells makes action potentials too much. Yeah, or not, one, or, one of the absolutely. very striking things on your very first slide is the mice look really small. Mm-hmm. Are the are uh, so it, it has to have a role in development, just yeah. based on the size. Yeah. So difference. Yep. Absolutely. And one of the the things that that I just find fascinating a bit, and I felt is really kind of helped me kind of grow as a neuroscientist is is understanding how interconnected different behaviors are. So one of the, the problems that both patients or people with Dravet syndrome and the mice have is um, problems with, with feeding. And feeding is something that I hadn't thought very much about until I started working with these mice and that it is an activity that involves um, coordinated movement for chewing and swallowing it involves hunger, which is a neural process. It involves, you know, the the appetitive nature of food, and all of these things are actually things that we think could possibly be going um, or disordered in this system. And so, and so, one of the things that the the mice, the mouse model that we study is that, is that they don't eat well. I see. And and they don't drink well, and they start um, losing weight very early on. And it's hard to know if that weight loss and this lack of of development has to do with the with brain connections not being made or peripheral connections not being made um, but something that seems seemed to me early on as simple as feeding does the mouse eat or not actually involves a whole lot of motivated behaviors and coordinated motor movement so at p0 like when they're born mm-hmm. they're they're the same size mm-hmm. yes okay. Yep. So these these mice, um, they're, they're born relatively normally. You can't um, tell the difference by eye um, through the first kind of week of life. Um, when we've we've actually we've one of the behavioral projects that my student was doing was was looking at early coordinated movement, and and as part of that she measured the the weight of the mouse each day for the first kind of ten days of life, and and they they track really nicely until about uh, eight days of life. And then they start regressing. And the, the wild type, the normal mice continue to grow. Mm-hmm. The knockout mice start getting smaller. They start mm-hmm. losing weight. Mm-hmm. And and it has to, I mean, I'm not sure exactly what it has to do with. They aren't eating correctly. Um, but whether that's because they don't have the coordination to eat or because they have some other change in, uh, as it is to say, motivation to eat. Mm-hmm. Or olfaction even. Mm-hmm. It could absolutely do that. Yeah, this is the whole uh, conundrum of the studying development, is mm-hmm. that everything as it develops causes a change in the behavior, and then the behavior feeds back on the development, mm-hmm. and every part of it is in this like horrible feedback loop that's mm-hmm. hard to unravel. Yeah. 
but that's very discouraging sounding, but it, maybe we shouldn't be discouraged because you have been finding uh, changes that can be sorted out and that make sense and have to do with epilepsy. So. Yeah, and I honestly, like, it, it, um, I, I find this all um, motivating and encouraging. To, because it, it it it's really it's really helped me kind of expand my perspective on on neural systems um, in ways that I hadn't thought about before. Mm-hmm. Usually, you know, in my training, what I was thinking about was like, okay, I want to look at this synapse and whether it grows or whether it shrinks. Yeah. I want to look at whether this excitatory or inhibitory input um, combined together to make a spike or to not make a spike. And really, I, I think that. That working in this system has has made me start to appreciate um, the, the the greater complexity of of what happens when circuits are interacting. That there is no one synapse. If you're looking at a synapse between two neurons, um, whether that synapse is active depends on all of the inputs onto neuron A, the presynaptic neuron, and whether it becomes active, and then whether it sends a signal to its synapse. And then whether that synapse releases neurotransmitter normally. And then how that, I guess, postsynaptic neuron receives that input. And so it really, you, you can only take kind of this reductionism so far before you have to, to realize that, that, that there, is no, there is no brain that, that is made up of, of two neurons and one synapse in between <laughs> the two. Um, we, we, it becomes... Um, our, I think our research and our research questions become much richer when we start considering kind of the, this greater perspective. And it is okay to study one synapse. It's okay to really delve into the molecular process at, of, of one little mechanism. Um, but to have the greater context and the, the perspective and understanding that this all exists in this in this massive and hyper-complex brain, um, it is, I think it's it's been humbling, but I think it's it's also really given me um, a greater appreciation for uh, for how fascinating the brain is, and you know, in its complexity, and in the fact that, like, oh, there's there are there's always going to be things that I didn't think about and didn't understand, um, and and that makes kind of my experiments, um, uh, I, I think, more interesting. On the other hand, if you find something in one synapse that's affected by this mutation, it's very likely that that's similar thing is happening in synapses in many places in the brain. We've come to view epilepsy as a cortex phenomenon because when we're seeing a seizure and we take an EEG, we can see the seizure in the EEG. So we go, oh, it must be the cortex. And of course, there's, there are cortical seizures for sure. Mm-hmm. But there's no guarantee that the cortex is acting alone in this or that the hippocampus is the right first place to look or... It's like we're always faced with the entire brain. Where do we look for this thing, this giant organ? So you have been looking in the hippocampus, which seems like a, a common place to look in epilepsy, and you have been seeing changes in, in excitability. You want to kind of say yeah, that? Yeah, so I think that, that that brings up a really interesting point just about neuroscience and probably science in general is that often and what I remember the expression is that you know if you're a hammer everything is a nail uh-huh. um, and if you're a cell physiologist every synapse is a CA1 pyramidal neuron <laughs> excitatory synapse in the hippocampus uh, and, and but you know I, I say that jokingly but but 
my, you know, a, a good chunk of my training was in hippocampus, and hippocampus is where a lot of seizure disorders originate, but not all of them. And I, you know, I think with Dravet syndrome, it, it certainly wouldn't even say necessarily the primary place um, to look. It's it's a it's a great place to study because we know a lot of interesting functions that the hippocampus takes part in, but. Um, we also have to consider the thalamus and the cerebellum and the basal ganglia, all of these other, and the cortex. The cortex is also important, I suppose. Um, <laughs> but, but we have to, to take into account, um, I think, again, it's, it's a part of kind of having scientific humility of knowing that it's okay to have a rationale and study one synapse or one brain region. As long as you have a reasonable rationale, that's great. Um, as long as we don't try to say, I have solved the problem and I have solved how Dravet syndrome works, or I've mm -hmm. solved the brain, because, you know, what I, what I, even in my own work, I've, as, as I've started to branch out, um, I've started to see that, like, well, the hippocampus has some really interesting changes and really interesting physiology and connectivity things going on in this syndrome, as does the cerebellum, as does the cortex and 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 i think that this is another reason that scientists need to talk to each other and talk to each other with a level of scientific humility to understand that like oh here are my uh, here, here good, <laughs> good, good luck with that but you know here are my results and they are relevant to this and maybe they will help educate you on your scientific questions and um but i i, I can i can tell you that one of the things that we've seen is an increase in, in activity and excitability in, in excitatory pyramidal neurons in the hippocampus. And, then, and that is in between the seizures, so this is independent of the actual seizure mechanism itself. Correct. Um, and yet, the same mutation that affects the same gene in the cerebellum causes the opposite physiological response, which is a decrease Ooh, in excitability. Uh -oh. um, so, <laughs> so it just tells you that, that, that you, can't, you can't generalize um, a phenotype from one system to another necessarily um, all the more interesting to look um, and uh, but you know finding finding one phenotype does not does not solve the issue especially if something is as complex as this but often you know in even just basic science questions about the brain is if you figure out something that that occurs in one brain region um, we all we all want our our experiments and our findings to kind of generalize um, but they don't necessarily. And that actually makes things all the more interesting as to, to figure out when they do and when they don't. What, what are general principles of cell biology or cell physiology and, and what aren't? So what? if I could ask, um, you know, just the idea that you started with a, a genetic form of epilepsy, mm -hmm. so you should know the root cause, mm -hmm. which means that in theory, you one could solve this problem by putting back the gene. Mm -hmm. But I think because you just mentioned that the defect could be different in different cell types and also within similar cell types, but in different brain regions, mm -hmm. that then makes that problem of solving, even when you know the gene, to putting it everywhere versus somewhere may, knowing where you need to put it could have different consequences. For sure. Um, and I think this is a, a fascinating question and problem yeah. in, in 
in science is the idea of fixing things kind of by replacement, yeah. by replacing the thing that, that's missing and, and, and hoping that the other changes that have occurred in the meantime um, can reverse themselves to kind of renormalize the entire system. And, and I think it's really questionable as to whether that can happen. And yet, mm-hmm. um, you know, there, there have, there's evidence that, that gene therapy in certain systems can work. Um, but I think we, I think it's really interesting to try to understand that and understand if, if we, you know, uh, uh, a, a gene like this missing in hippocampus causes excitability and activity to go up, mm-hmm. and in the cerebellum causes excitability and activity to go down. Um, we hope that just sticking it back in would would normalize both those in the right way. But the, the brain, especially especially over the course of development, um, which which you can speak to, is is such a complex system, and there are so many plasticities, so many changes that that you hope that the what we want is the brain to rebalance itself, but we don't want part of that rebalancing process to then become in itself pathological when we stick that, if just if we blindly just stick the gene back mm-hmm. in. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, the brain... So you, yeah. you almost, it seems like what you're suggesting is we need to understand how the health gets built and wired and connected before just putting things back in. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we don't want to just chuck a bunch of wiring and plumbing at a, yeah. at a, at a house frame and, and assume that, that we will have a, a functional house. Um, but the brain is amazingly resilient and plastic. And, um, you know, mm-hmm. as, as I said, there are, you know, examples and evidence that the gene replacement really is viable in a lot of systems. You know, I, I do not know if it will be in this system, but I, I would love that to be true because we would love to develop, um, you know, therapies to help the people that have these these disorders. Um, and, you know, and there is evidence from other forms of Dravet syndrome that are caused by other mm-hmm. genes that, that actually working to replace the missing gene. And, and it's it's kind of a different system. So it's not, it's not, it's not a direct parallel, but but um, replacement of expression of that missing protein actually really does significantly serve as a treatment for that disease. Um, so, do, uh, fingers do crossed. Say a little bit about that. Yeah. So the actually the more common form of of Dravet syndrome is caused by mutations to the sodium channel itself to SCN1A, which 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 encodes NAV1.1. So that voltage gated sodium channel, and um, the the kind of the main difference between these two forms of Dravet syndrome is is in in um, people that have uh, variants of SCN1A the, the sodium channel um, it is a is a is a dominant somatic mutation so they they have damage to one copy for SCN1B it's a recessive disorder so they have damage to both copies so with the SCN1A and this is actually currently in in clinical trials, I believe, there's a, it's not a gene replacement so much as it's a manipulation to, to stop the degradation of some of the, um, the transcripts, the, the, the mRNA for the good copy of the gene. Uh-huh. And in that case, um, or in that, in that way, boost up the expression of the, of the sodium channel. Um, and that has actually been shown to, to be effective at really And that's helping. body-wide? That's, you're doing that in the whole animal or just in the brain or just it in is, some part of the brain? You know, and I, I, don't, 
I, I, I can't give you a good answer to that. I don't remember. Because I, I while you guys were talking about mm -hmm. gene replacement, I was thinking, what a cool experiment. I'll just fix the gene in the cortex and see if the animal gets better. Or I'll mm -hmm. fix it in the olfactory bulb and see if they start eating. I'll fix it, you know, just yeah. in one place to see each of these symptoms. I know it's like a fantasy, but... But, um, I mean, it's, it's, a really, it's a really powerful method to really start understanding all of the different things that, that you know, all the different kind of comorbid symptoms that, that people have, in addition to having seizures when they have a disorder like this, is mm -hmm. to really kind of piece apart um, how a gene is important in, in different uh, neural systems. Mm -hmm. So it's a really great, um, it's a really kind of great approach to use. Um, we can't really do it, though, can we? Could I just go in and fix a gene in the cortex? Well, I mean, we, so we have conditional knockout mice. We could certainly make a conditional knock-in mouse. Uh -huh. um, and the, the, the difficulty to that is that the, so the mice that I use to study this, this form of Dravet syndrome, uh, it's a, it is a, a lethal mutation. So the mice die about three weeks of age, um, which, which makes them tricky to study. Yeah. So if you wanted to kind of like brain region at a time, attempt a recovery, it's got to work within that three weeks. It's got it's got to it's got to yeah. boost um, those you know the health of the mice up in, in effectively enough that then you can either measure your outcome mm -hmm. in that three weeks or or, or outcome is simple survival. Yeah, yeah, and, and but um, you know kind of working in the opposite direction. Um, and again, Lori Isom's lab has created a, a conditional knockout mouse and has looked at, at knocking out in specific cell types. And if you knock out the gene only in um, excitatory pyramidal neurons, the mice survive. Ah. And they have symptoms, but they survive. If you knock out the gene specifically in GABAergic interneurons, um, the, mice, the mice die. They don't die as quickly, but they still all die. Mm. Um, so, so this is, you know, it's another way of kind of, of taking the system apart and, and, and understanding in which cell types this gene has uh, certain functions. So in all of this, um, we haven't talked very much about seizures. So you're studying in between seizures mm -hmm. under normal circumstances, which of course are, you're making slices, so it's not mm -hmm. a very normal circumstance. But... The, uh, I guess it's because the seizure isn't a real disease. Right? If the seizure was the only thing that was wrong, you probably would just study seizures and try to stop that from happening. Yeah. But these animals would not survive, even if they didn't have a seizure, right? Because they're not growing, they're not eating there. And this would be true of people, too, who have this probably. The seizure is just one... I mean... Tell me, am I wrong? Yeah, so, like... so the, I, you're bringing up a really fundamental issue in, I think, the entire field of epilepsy. And I would love to hear Jenny's perspective on this too, which is seizures themselves are, are damaging events to the brain. Um, in, in a lot of seizure disorders, they are. And there is a lot of, you know, I think, questions as to the other issues that go along with epilepsy disorders, whether or not they're caused by damage due to seizures. And so we don't actually know because we don't have a, a model of Dravet syndrome that doesn't have seizures. And we don't know whether that 
mouse would live or not. And, and also, you you probably don't have you don't have a model of Dravet that doesn't have seizures. But even if you try to block the seizures with known anti seizure medications, mm-hmm. it doesn't work. Yeah, that yeah, that's correct. And Do you know where the seizure starts. Um, so there's there's evidence that a lot of the seizures may start in thalamus. Um, or they might start in cortex, and they may start in temporal lobe. And in in mice, um, they haven't been well localized. So so I'm not I'm actually not sure in our mice. Um, and I just kind of on a, on a personal level, there, there are plenty of physiologists who study seizures specifically, and seizures are really interesting physiological events. Um, my own kind of personal training and like and my my own scientific interests. Have 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 led me to study the in between seizure periods, because that's just the more interesting type of of neural activity that 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 I find interesting. Um, because if you consider if someone has a a seizure disorder, a type of epilepsy, and they were having a seizure one percent of the time, they would have an extremely severe form of epilepsy. That would be Really, you know, a really, a really awful form of of, of a seizure disorder. But ninety nine percent of the time, their brain would not be seizing. So my own personal interest is that period. Is is what has changed about neural processing and kind of cell communication um, in epilepsy disorders in between seizures, and and that just that just happens to kind of be like what has really sparked my interest. So that's that's kind of the path I'm taking, and there. Are, other people that that specifically study why does a seizure start why does a seizure stop because these are really also interesting physiological signals that cause that to happen to cause the brain to switch states um, and and my research so far has really focused on that between states and and what has changed about how the brain looks at its world um, in that between state and how that relates to the other non-seizure um, kind of uh, neural dysfunction that people with Dravet syndrome have. So whatever's wrong with the brain that causes a seizure was there even when there was no seizure. Right? That state switching requires some change in the brain. That's the, yeah. the change that you're looking for, I guess. But I was just wondering about the experiment where you, you know, magically repair a gene in a particular part of the brain because if you could do that and just stop the seizure but not stop anything else, you could answer the question is, is the seizure causing the other symptoms mm-hmm. or are the other symptoms part of the cause of the seizure? Mm-hmm. Which is another one of these difficult uh, thought loops that we get. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, and, I, and I think maybe these questions, like to disentangle the what causes the seizure from the comorbidities, which are, a, a, you know, as... Dr. Howard mentioned a, v- a very significant problem that it's, that's very debilitating, equally if not more than the seizures. You know, we study a gene as well. Uh, it's a it's a transcription factor. So there, it's it's well, it's a single gene, but it controls you know many many other genes. So again, the complexity of is the defect at the cellular and the circuit level due to the the first gene or the other genes that that gene regulates, mm-hmm. it's um, it's 
not known. And so we, we take a very reductionistic approach. You know, we're studying this in organoids mm -hmm. and, and we still don't really know. So we see the hyperactivity and we see also a developmental change in the different cell types. Mm -hmm. And so the, there, there are other pr approaches as well. So since there's a, you mentioned there's zebrafish and there's fruit fly and perhaps the, the convergence of all of these different models looking at the same types of genes, we might be able to figure this out. Uh, you're trying to just, you know, this question of how the seizures and the other symptoms are related. So in those zebrafish and fruit fly models, are there seizures? Yeah. Um, and I, I, I want to state this correctly. That in, in the zebrafish, um, they've re taken recordings of the seizures and sent them to epileptologists, clinicians who are expert in reading EEG, and kind of you know normalized them over, over time because zebrafish seizures are shorter, and said, can you tell me which is a human seizure and which is a zebrafish seizure? And they were unable to distinguish them. Zebrafish um, have a cortex? They, no. No. They, they, they don't, they don't but, you can, <laughs> but you can stick an electrode into a zebrafish and record seizure activity. Uh -huh. and, and you can... And you can record behavioral seizures, and these are really powerful tools because they're so much more high throughput, and they are it, uh, they're reductionist in a way that that rem that of course is a simplified system, but they allow you to kind of study some of the you know kind of the get a simpler answer to, to some of these processes, and and so are there uh, so your uh, big focus is the ARCs gene, mm -hmm. and are there uh, zebrafish or Drosophila models of ARCs, uh, ARCs mutations? Absolutely. So, of course, ARCs is Aristolus relatus homeobox, and it was originally discovered as a Drosophila mutation, and it's a, it's a transcription factor, and the flies have a patterning defects in their Hox genes, so they don't form a certain type of aristae or a type of bristle on their, on their structure, on their wing structure. So, so I, I don't know if anyone has really looked at the mutations in from a from a epileptics a epilepsy standpoint, mm -hmm. but I do know that Scott Baraban's lab has knocked out one of the two ARCs genes in zebrafish because there it's duplicated. So there's a A version and a B version. Okay, and so they they have a a of zebrafish that has seizures that has one of the ARCs genes deleted. Mm -hmm. So that would be very exciting to compare um, the phenotypes and also the cellular level mm -hmm. changes. Yeah, um, and yeah, mm -hmm. and and one of the so uh, Scott Baraban was a big mentor of mine. Uh, I, I mean, he was a direct mentor. I worked as a, as a postdoc in his lab, um, not on the zebrafish side. But I think that that's the power of these models is is as kind of circling back to your question about these different comorbidities. And mechanisms is is they've used these zebrafish um, in collaboration with Minisha Patel's lab at University of Colorado to study metabolism changes in Dravet syndrome, and so you can study seizures in zebrafish, and you can bathe zebrafish in different drugs, and you can do high throughput screening, and you can understand 
the metabolic changes in a much easier way than you can with, with mm-hmm. a mouse. Um, and uh, I think it's Ann Anderson's lab um, has made Drosophila um, models of, of Dravet syndrome. And the really fascinating thing is that the, some of the very basic cell physiology phenotypes that were first discovered in, in mice, they have verified in Drosophila, looking at the difference between excitation changes and yeah. excitatory neurons versus inhibitory neurons. And so these models are really powerful for understanding the basic mechanisms of these I diseases. think there's there's a consensus that there so so I think, you know, when you're in the field, you you you're sort of presented with these tables of all of these, you know, first, second, third generation anti-seizure medications. And then of course we have that statistic where a third of patients are refractory to these medications. But I think there's this opportunity now to kind of revisit the same medications, or at least the different classes, and look at the comorbidities. Mm-hmm. But without, but by having these, these this sort of this like repertoire of models, that it offers that opportunity to potentially look for medicines that might work. Maybe they don't work on the seizures, uh, right, mm-hmm. to suppress the seizures, but maybe they do have some effect on anxiety or mm-hmm. sleep or um, cognition, some of these other domains. What a great way to end, because uh, that's a real uh, promise for the future that goes way beyond just one genetic form of epilepsy. It may be a roadmap for solving the larger problem. Mm-hmm. So thank you very much. Mackenzie Howard for joining us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been great to visit. I've had a great time here at UT San Antonio, and uh, I can't wait to join you again. Cool. Thanks, Jenny. Thank you. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop.